My family had to flee Syria in 1980 when I was five years old because my father and my, my grandfather were marked for execution. That I will support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the State of New Jersey. And the Constitution of the State of New Jersey. When you walk up to your house and see the door broken, it's definitely a very scary feeling. When you know that your father is not there because someone is after him, was a very scary feeling for me as a child. That I will faithfully, impartially, and justly perform all the duties of the office of mayor. The fact that I had to be removed from my home and my homeland made me who I am right now. I, I hate injustice. According to the best of my ability. According to the best of my ability. So help me God. So help me God. I am Mohamed Karula, mayor of the borough of Prospect Park, New Jersey. Welcome to Outside Shop. They drew a line in the sand. Now here you stand outside that line with goals in mind. Dreams and destinies you will put here to find, manifest. They say you the worst when you know you're the best. So you invest, put in that work, even when it hurts. Their can'ts and their doubts turn into our will and our must. You put trust in your faith and your gut. The instincts you naturally feel against all lies. You tighten up even the playing field. Brick by brick you build like the city. There's something in me, in you, that just won't let you stop. You know what's going in, even though they say you are an outside shot. Hopefully everyone is aware of what is happening in Syria right now. Tragedies occurring to the Syrian people and the refugees looking to find a safe home. So when I found out about the story of Mohammed Karula, I knew he represented everything we wanted to feature on Outside Shot. Mohammed lives in my home state of New Jersey. He is the mayor of Prospect Park. He is a U.S. citizen and he is a Syrian Muslim. He is the ultimate underdog, but so much of what he's about to share is being ignored. So in this episode of Outside Shot, the story and passionate journey of Mohammed Karula. First and foremost, I want to thank you for coming down. We all New Jersey natives here, and I look at myself as a Christian. I look at you, you're a Muslim. And this guy here is a Jew. <laughs> and we're all from New Jersey. We're all brothers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm honored to be here with you as well. Describe to me what Syria was like when you were there in the mid-1970s. Syria to me is my motherland. It's the land of my ancestors. My family was well established there. My father was a dentist and my grandparents, one was a doctor, one was an imam of a mosque, a religious leader and they were very well respected in the community. Because of the first uprising against Assad, the father, I had to be uprooted from my home and my family had to flee Syria in 1980 when I was five years old because my father and my, my grandfather were marked for execution because they were part of the opposition. You know, despite the fact that I left at five years old, I still remember the old city. I still remember my house. I, at one point, I had a cool electric motorcycle. I always thought about it and uh, I, I wanted it. So <laughs> that's what it is to me. It's a love that I couldn't forget. Most of the time, thinking of the Middle East, people just think of war. And so I think it's important that you said I had toys. 
I had friends. It was normal life. Yeah. I haven't been to Syria, but I've been to Turkey. A beautiful and, country. Yeah. Gorgeous. And when I got there, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then we had training camp there, and we played in the World University Games there, and there was never a problem. We should go together. <laughs> so I know you're from the city of Aleppo. How would you describe the changes going on from what it was to what it has become today? The city of Aleppo is the commercial hub for uh, Syria. The two largest cities are the city of Aleppo in the north near the Turkish border and Damascus in the south, which is uh, the capital. Four million people strong, or was four million people strong. You had everything that a normal city would have. Mosques, churches, schools. We all knew each other. Our family has been there for centuries, uh, so, so we were an, a known family in, in town. And my last normal visit to Aleppo was in 2010, prior to the uprising. And I went to weddings, I went to restaurants, I took my kids to amusement parks. But because of the devastation that's going on right now and the commercial capital of, of, of Syria, that's all changed. A lot of rich history and culture that's been destroyed, it's been flattened to the ground. And my family's all over the world now. To me, it's the land of my ancestors, and now it's being targeted with internationally forbidden cluster bombs, bunker busters, destroyed hospitals. To me, when I look at Aleppo now, what was once a vibrant city is now a ghost town, an apocalyptic scene. One of my best friends, he played in Damascus. Mm -hmm. I think this is about three or four years ago, and he said to me, he was like, I can feel the change. He said it was one time they were going to a game and he had to hide in the back of the bus because he said some people pulled the bus over and they had guns, but they didn't have identification as a cop or military. And he said that was the first time he said I start feeling a change where they were checking for anything. Mm -hmm. And I just was like, wow. And he just was telling me like three months prior to that, he said, man, you got to come to Damascus. This is unbelievable. And he said some of his friends are just scattered across Europe playing basketball, mm -hmm. but they can't go back to their country and they won't go back. And he said the ones that are there are sending out footage and doing everything that they can do to get their story out there so people can see, hey, it's good people here, it's great people here, yeah. but we need help. Absolutely. A barrel bomb landed here. And obviously there's no government service to restore this. This could last for months before anybody fixes it. The world really doesn't see the entire picture. They see what media shows them. But there are Syrians, really, all what they want is their freedom. They want to be free from the brutal dictatorship of the Assad family. And there's many intelligent Syrians that if the world gives them a chance and helps them, they could run a beautiful country, a peaceful country. They're not looking to be aggressors. They just want to live in peace, just like they have done for centuries. Can you share with us what you recall happening that caused you and your family to flee Syria? I tell you what I remember and what I was told. When the Assad regime, the father, started abusing people, one of my grandparents on my mother's side ran for the parliament with a group of his friends and won. And they were vocal against the regime. And my grandfather from my father's side, having the pulpit of the mosque, after he spoke, demonstrations came out of the mosque. 
Um, so they were vocal and they had to flee at one point because they, they were marked for execution. And, and what I remember, I do remember the beautiful streets. I do remember my house. But at the end, I remember our home being broken into by the Assad intelligence services. I remember seeing demonstrations in the streets and hearing uh, gunshots and seeing tanks in the streets. When you walk up to your house and see the door broken, uh, it's definitely a very scary feeling. When you know that um, your father is not there because someone is after him, that's also a very scary feeling. The fact that I had to be removed from my home and my homeland made me who I am right now. I, I hate injustice and uh, I always root for the underdog. And if you see that I take the risk and, and go to Syria on humanitarian missions, I've done it seven times, and it's because I, I just don't like what's, uh, what's going on, and it's a challenge to that dictator and to his regime that despite everything that you're doing to uh, the Syrian people, we're, we're gonna come and help them, even if I have to risk my own life. For the past 10 days, the regime has been with explosive barrels which have killed over a thousand people. Uh, the emergency rooms are filled on a daily basis with victims of uh, this And uh, it made me into the person that wanted to help my community out. In 2001, when I ran for council person, one year after I received my citizenship, because when we arrived to the U.S. in 1991, my home community welcomed us and helped us out, and I felt that I had to give back. You flee Syria and head to Saudi Arabia. What was life like in Saudi Arabia, and why did you then leave and go to the United States? There was definitely no option to stay inside Syria at that point, and things went blank for me for a couple of months until I ended up in first grade, and uh, I attended school there. It became my second home, and I had the sense of family. A lot of the family members moved with us and left Saudi Arabia in 1991 after the Gulf War. And the reason we had to leave Saudi Arabia is because as a non-Saudi citizen, I did not have the option of attending college there. There was a, definitely a cultural shock. In Saudi Arabia, there is no boys and girls in the school. It's boys in the schools and girls that have their own schools. And now, you know, the desk next to me could have a girl. And I'm like, oh, this, this is new. This is a new experience. <laughs> but we visited the United States three times. But I would stay in my grandparents' house, not be integrated into society. Now I'm integrated in society, and it's a completely different experience. But it was an exciting opportunity. For the first time after my junior year, after my first year here, I started playing sports in high school. So I did wrestling my senior year and I did uh, soccer as well and slowly integrated myself into society. I volunteered for the fire department after I graduated high school. I volunteered for the local hospital during my senior year as well. Part of the reason was because my father was in the hospital at that point. So it was an opportunity for me to mix up with society and also be close to my father. And then I went on to college and in senior year in college, I decided I want to try football. What position? Defensive end. Oh, man. <laughs> and now I'm meeting Randy. Now, now I want to be a professional basketball player. Yeah, we can shoot some hoops. If at the age of 40. <laughs> 
Why Prospect Park? You can move to Newark, uh-huh. where I'm from. And yeah. You both could have been Newark natives, but you moved to Prospect Park. Why? My grandparents, being New Yorkers, always came to Patterson to purchase their Middle Eastern groceries. And when my father arrived with us, you know, we've always visited without my father, but in 1991, my father arrived with us and he knew he wasn't going to stay in New York. So they went to Patterson and I guess they met some people who introduced them to Prospect Park that has a uh, sizable Middle Eastern community. About 15% of the population is Middle Eastern. And we settled in Prospect Park. They found an apartment quickly, and we've been there ever since. We will leave today as citizens of one nation. I will now call the names of your countries of origin. Today, we are especially proud to welcome our newest American citizens who are gaining the special privilege, membership into the What American were those emotions like to become a U.S. citizen? A lot of joy and pride. One thing I appreciate about the U.S. is that I could do anything and be anybody, even if I wasn't a U.S. citizen. But the fact that once I become a U.S. citizen, the fact that I could vote, and my vote does count and matter, and I'm not in Syria where the Assad regime gets 99.99% of the vote constantly, it was a lot of pride and joy, and I would never take it for granted. Dr. Martin Luther King espoused the idea that America's future success was tied to the country's ability to love it's one It's what I want to see happen in my homeland, in the Middle East and Syria, that people will get to select their own leaders and determine their own destination. And the right of everyone to have their voices heard. For anyone who's listening who's not familiar with what you have to do in order to become a U.S. citizen, can you tell us what was required and what the process was like? Yeah, well, you got to study 100 questions. <laughs> part of the test then is the interview, the verbal interview. And I think part of it is the determination that when you're becoming a U.S. citizen, you're pledging allegiance to the country that hosted you, the country that has been good to you. And the fact that when you're asked a question in case of a war between your homeland and the U.S., which side you will take, I think if you can't answer that question, then you shouldn't consider applying for the citizenship. Congratulations. So I think it was an easy question to deal with. So it, it requires love for the land that has taken me in. Today we are 15 years away from the most tragic singular event in our nation's history. Just as the actual day keeps moving further and further away from us, our wounds continue to heal, our children continue to grow, and our nation continues to prosper. On that tragic day, the steel and the concrete were destroyed. But our resolve to defend our liberties grew stronger. September 11th, I'm a senior in high school. Okay. I'm at my journalism class, mm -hmm. and I'm doing a sports section for my school paper. Someone says to me, hey, a helicopter just ran into the World Trade Center, and you can see smoke coming from the buildings. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Then another person said, hey, man, I think someone just shot a missile into one of the towers. And so from our school in Newark, if you go up to like the fourth floor and to the roof, you can see 
the World Trade Center. And when the principal gets on a loudspeaker and he says, school is out. Like, there are no more classes. School is out. Get home to your families. I was taking public transportation, so I go take the public transportation. It stopped. So I'm trying to get home, and I got to walk like seven to eight miles. So I finally get home, and only Channel 2 was working at the time. <laughs> I'm looking at it, and I see what happened. And I'm saying, wow, who would do this and why? Just me as a 17-year-old. Like, why would they do this? Like, where were the thoughts going through your mind at that time when that happened? Well, my recollection of the events are probably just as vivid as yours. I was at school. You know, I was a teacher by profession. And I remember the teacher who informed me about the attacks. And I remember that she had a Dunkin' Donut cup in her hand. I mean, wow. this is how vivid yeah. things are. Wow. I remember how beautiful the weather was that day. Clear sky. <laughs> yes. And the second my class ended because we didn't inform the students right away, I had a prep, so I went outside to my car and I was listening. And I think at that point, that's when the World Trade Center collapsed. And I just, I was in just total disbelief that actually this is going on. But to me, obviously, as an Arab, as a Muslim, I had concerns for my family because my mother worked as a bus driver and she covers, and I had concerns for her. And communication was completely dead. But as a teacher, I couldn't leave my job until the students were dismissed and all the kids left. So the first thing I did was drive to my mother's house to make sure that she's safe. And I remember driving on um, Route 20 and seeing the smoke. I mean, I can't see New York from there, but you could see the smoke. And I was very saddened, obviously, um, for the loss of lives. And I was a volunteer fireman as, as well. And if my department was called to the World Trade Center, I'm going to go with them. But just like you, the, the memories were very vivid. I, I don't think I'll ever forget every single moment of it. Was it ever dangerous during that time for you and your family? You always think that someone might act just do something erratic foolish. and do something yeah. um, but if if you look at my pattern of behavior, the way I think about things, if if someone is going to do something and it's it's my time, it's my time. It's not going to stop me from living my normal life. But we were just like everybody else. We had the American flags on our cars just like everybody else. But I wasn't going to stop my life because of possibility of danger. At what point do you realize that maybe the rest of this country and the, the towns are not as open-minded or welcoming as Prospect Park? When I started working after college, because my environment was completely safe and limited before. But when I started working, I started meeting different personalities. I'm like, whoa. I realized that not everything is like my community. There are people out there who, no matter what we do or say, they don't know us for who we are as Arabs or, or Muslims. They haven't experienced life with us. And no matter what we do or say, they're not going to believe us. And that's when it became clear to me that in order for us to change the attitude of people around us, about us, we have to integrate more into society. And, and that obviously 
with the idea that why don't you run for office? I'm like, all right, so that's one thing you could do to change people's mind about who we are. We never left Prospect Park. I guess part of it could be because there's a community that we could associate with. But then when I got involved in politics, it was, I want to help the town. I want to do whatever I can. And things just escalated. You know, within four years, I became a councilman November 2001, was sworn into office January 2002, and I became mayor in November of 2005. So less than four years. November 2005, I was selected by my colleagues on the council because the mayor before me stepped down. And days before I was selected, a hate mail came out calling me a hater living amongst us, uh, you know, trying to capitalize on any sort of bias toward Middle Easterners, toward Muslims. But the community did not respond to that hate. Until now, we live in a community that's been very hospitable to us. We're homeowners, we're entrepreneurs in the community. So when I finally received the nomination of everybody in the unanimous vote, and I came down to be sworn... My mother was there. It was a moment of pride and, and joy. And I put that hate behind us right away and we moved forward. Hi Prospect Park residents, this is your mayor with an exciting announcement for our and the following year I had to run for a full term. Homeowners, the municipal building will be open for you. And, and I was able to family. do things and improve the town, so I'm helping the town. So for now, Prospect Park, a small community in Passaic County, is home for me and my family. Hello residents of North 6th Street, starting next week. Every single intersection on your street will what be What is life like on a daily basis as the mayor of Prospect Park? It varies. Sometimes I have absolutely nothing and I stay in my sweatpants all day. And sometimes I wish I had like 10 of me to, to do things. For those of you who are interested in growing to see organic works vegetables, out, we are, our aim is to alleviate congestion around the school. I have under me five full-time staffers and limited resources. So... When I say I wish there were 10 of me is because all of a sudden everybody needs something and I need to be there. And with the small town politics, when I give out my business card, it has my cell phone on it and it has my email. People can reach me directly. That's the reality of small town politics. You're not going to see this with a big town mayor. When you deal with the politician of a large city. They have a lot of assistance. With small town politics, if everybody has a need, then they're going to call you and they're going to call you directly. That's what my residents expect. So it's a different experience from the, the big town mayor. The mayor of the city of Newark, We believe that no matter how difficult things get, our city could change, it would change, that we have to invest in our children, not bury them. Are you familiar with the crime rate in Newark? Yeah, people speak about it. It upsets me mm -hmm. when I talk about it. Yeah. Where people solve their problems through murder and bloodshed. Where we watch crime go up and down, up and down per year. Just because growing up there, it seemed like it has taken two steps forward and seven steps back. Mm -hmm. When people speak ill of this city, they are speaking ill of you. So if you were the mayor of Newark, 
how would you stop the crime there or at least try to cut the crime in half? So I, I work with inner city kids, whether it's a my current job or my previous job. And I think the family unit is extremely, extremely important to reducing crimes. A lot of the young people that I dealt with, and I've had students who were arrested for homicide. I've had it. And I'm not saying that everyone who commits a homicide or a robbery comes from a broken home, but a lot of them did come from broken homes. But I've also seen kids who are extremely successful who come from broken homes, but they're the odd ones. So I think as a mayor, I would work with single mothers, single fathers, give them the support system to maintain and contain their children where these children don't have to go to the vicious outside world as a source of support. You know, they say it takes a village to raise a child, and it really does. I think a lot of leaders fail when they don't think about it that way. We need to provide these youngsters with the support. We need to provide single parents with the support to keep these kids away from bad influence. See, if you were my teacher and I sat down and talked to you for five minutes a day, my GPA probably been 3.8. <laughs> but we just don't have male role models. It's more tough love. We don't have people who sit there and talk to us and explain. If you keep doing this, you're going to end up in a bad place. And that's how I felt as a high school kid. Someone will yell at you and get on you, but they will never explain, hey, if you didn't do this, then you're not going to be able to to go to college. You're not going to be able to get a good job. You're not going to be able to support your family. So I think if I would have talked to someone like you, if you were my teacher, I would have been an engineer <laughs> doing something besides basketball. Well, you can do both. Once yeah. you retire, you can be an engineer as well. I do remember incidents of students. There was a kid that was very difficult. He must have been going through a lot of difficult time. And I remember eighth grade, I just sat him down and I spoke to him and I'm like, man, you're going to ruin yourself. And that was in the early 2000s. And I still have him now as, as a friend on Facebook. And he thanks me for that one particular talk because that's when I got through to him. And that's when he realized that if I continue down that path of being angry at the world, I'm definitely going to ruin myself. So when you work with these kids with passion, they see it. They feel it, they sense it, and they will respond to it. Randy and I have had many conversations about whether or not people are just done hearing good stories. How do you stay hopeful? How do you stay motivated when you know what you are doing, you know what you feel about this country and your community? What is it, Chris Christian? I do not trust this administration to effectively vet the people who, who are proposed to be coming in in order to protect the safety and security of the American people, so I would not permit them in. And then you hear what you hear on TV. You hear what the governor says about Syrian refugees, says about children. The fact is that we need for appropriate vetting, and I don't think orphans under five um, are being, you know, should be admitted into the United States at this point. But, you know, they have no family. How does that not make you feel as if, why even try? I have tunnel vision. I almost don't care about opinions, about what people say. When I deal with my council people, I constantly tell them, don't respond to rumors. We know where we want to go. We know what we want to do. Let's just do it. Do not let 
the outside influence you. If you really believe in what you're doing and you believe that you're doing the right thing, then what people say about you will not matter. And then when we're done, when we do what we want to do, and I'll be like, okay, you see, it worked. I don't like watching the news. I think the mass media needs to start putting more of the positive news. It's not that people don't want to see it. I think it'll make them feel happier. But TV, radio, newspapers, they just want to put what entertains people and makes them feel good about themselves, about their current situation, by putting the sad news of other people. Donald Trump Jr. compares Syrian refugees to candy, Skittles. Skittles. So if he was sitting here right now, what would you tell him? No Skittles for him. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I would tell him. If someone doesn't want to get it, they don't want to get it. The, The guy grew up privileged. The Syrian refugees did not choose to be refugees. As a matter of fact, most of them, even the ones who are here, regret leaving Syria because when they're not in their element, when they're not in their homeland, they don't feel as dignified. And some, you know, f- quite frankly, some of them say, I wish my building collapsed on me and I never left my homeland. At least I'll die in my house. Hello, everyone. I am uh, reporting from Rayhanli, a refugee uh, city that is hosting uh, thousands of Syrians. Behind me, a, uh, what appears to be a storefront but in reality, it's a warehouse where two families uh, are living. Someone like him, I wouldn't even talk to him. You know, I, I try to reach the rational people who could do something about what's going on. So someone like Trump Jr., who's never had to struggle for anything in life, I have nothing to say to him. I have to move on. This is uh, basically a warehouse, and uh, it's open space, no privacy. Um, no mattresses, uh, people are living on, uh, on the My floor. faith definitely plays an important role in who I am and why I do what I do. Because we are taught you are a member of the human race, you are to be a productive member of society. You know, you're like a tree that is planted somewhere and it has to produce fruit. So the media would like to portray us as angry people who just go and blow things up. But if that was the case, with 1.7 billion Muslims around the world, I I think Earth will be over by now. But there's a small fraction of these radicals that the media is highlighting. But if you look, there's major company CEOs who are Muslims. If you look in our communities now, we're doctors, engineers, teachers, police officers, there's even Muslim judges, superior court judges and municipal judges in the state of New Jersey. If you count all the radicals, they won't even equal to 1% of the entire Muslim community. Yet, those are the ones who are highlighted, not the ones who are contributing positively to society. A large part of the issue is we are almost taught that we judge a whole group of anything based on one story or one individual. Do you both think that that is the problem here, or is there something else? No, absolutely. And and excuse me for for jumping in first, because I'm I'm recalling the story of 
The young man from North Carolina who shot his father then went on to shoot uh, several people in the school. I believe it was a sheriff officer there announced that it was not a terrorist because the shooter and the victims were all, according to him, Caucasians. So it's not a terrorist act. But to <laughs> me, the word terror means to scare. So when you're out there shooting people, you're attempting to scare them. So to me, that's the definition of terrorism, not if you're skin is dark or if your name is Muhammad. Stereotypes are amazing and I look at it all the time. I walk into places here where I live at now and I may have on a t-shirt and some sweats and I'm in a nice car and somebody look at me like and they don't know me. They're like, oh, is he washing that car? Is he? And they don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I find it amazing when I speak to fellow Americans who, who lived overseas. If they lived in the Middle East or if they lived in Europe, their perspective on life is completely different. Because over there, when you watch the news, it's about what's going on in the world. When you watch the news here, it's about who was killed, who was run over, who got shot. It's completely different mentality. So definitely media here plays a big role in how we think. So until the media acts responsibly, that's what we're gonna end up with. People to be our mayor in Prospect Park, Muhammad Tahir Khairallah. I have made a decision that I am going to speak. Let's go back to when we were little children, when we were scared of the monster in the dark. Every little sound in the room scared us. And we hid under the blanket, and the more we thought about it, the scarier it became. But once we grew up and we realized that the monster was our imagination, the monster ceased to exist. That's what we created in Syria. It's the fear. Stop with the fear. Let's be one. We are one. Wahid, wahid, wahid. Ishab is Suri, wahid. Wahid, wahid, wahid. Can you compare what you and your family went through to what the Syrian refugees of today are experiencing? You see the emotions in me because I had to leave, and I only saw a fraction of what they saw. When I was in Syria, when I walked in, in Aleppo during the uprising in, the, in my seven visits to Syria. You see an apocalyptic scene that I, I think would devastate anybody, and that's what these kids have to go through. Behind me are rivers of wasted water uh, due to a barrel bomb that broke the water main. But the tragedy is in the thousands They've of been thousands going of without an education. They know nothing but war. These kids could tell you if a rocket is taken off or landing just from the sound. They could tell you based on the sound what kind of rocket is hidden. So the emotions in me, I think they're going to have that multiplied by a million. And this is a generation that's gonna remember that the world has abandoned them to the brutality of the Assad regime, to the brutality of Hezbollah and Iran and Russia. Uh, these families we're visiting right now have orphan children. Uh, this particular family, their father died due to an aerial bombing. Uh, he was going to get bread for them, and now there's three children and have no support uh, And as emotional as I am, I don't think I went through a fraction of what they have gone through, seeing their homes being destroyed, seeing their family members blown into pieces. 
who had the ground shake underneath them or so the helicopters and the plane bombing them, the kind of emotional toll that it would take on them. This is special here. I feel as though this is special because this is not for social media. This is not reality TV. Mm -hmm. This is what people need to hear. These are real life stories. I think a lot of times, even myself, we get caught up having privilege because we live in the United States and we really don't see things like that. But when you talk about you guys having to flee and move from not just state to state or town to town, you had to move from country to country. I appreciate you just laying it all out there. Thank you. We know this must be even harder for you since we saw your Facebook post. Hello, on behalf of my wife and myself, I would like to thank all those who sent their condolences, their thoughts, and their prayers on the passing of her uncle and his wife in Syria due to the aerial attacks by the Assad regime and the Russian Air Force. Can you share with us a little more about tragedy that affected your family? My wife's uncle was killed, him and his wife, and 13 others in their building, when a six-story building was targeted by either the Russian or the Syrian Air Force. They were lucky to be pulled out of the building, and they found their bodies. But those who were on the lower floors were just left under the rubbles because the civil defense force there cannot catch up now with retrieving bodies from underneath buildings. So many of them remain uh, dead under the buildings that were destroyed. Thank you for your thoughts and thank you for your prayers. However, we do have a message. Thoughts and prayers will not save the rest, nor will it return the refugees. Only action will. The fact that you used the term lucky for one part, it, it just... I don't, I, yeah, that's, lucky to find a body, yeah. That's pretty crazy. Can you tell us a little bit about what you have been doing to get help back home? First report from uh, the city of Aleppo. Please stay tuned until the end of this report. As I and have to show some you of the hurdles and obstacles that you faced in trying to do so? So when I first started, it was about providing food baskets to a lot of the Syrians who were internally displaced before the refugee crisis started. Hello, everyone. We're uh, actually wrapping up our first 1,000 baskets that were distributed in Aleppo. The numbers were not that high back in 2012. So we started by providing food baskets to Syrians who were internally displaced. We 25,000 families for two days, 50 tons, 50 metric tons. Then when the conflict continued and schools were being destroyed, we started helping schools because as, as a person who comes from the education field, I believe strongly in education. And we were concerned about having a lost generation of these youth who didn't have schools to go to. It is a $10,000 shipment of emergency trauma medicine, as uh, you might After that, be aware. the regime and Russia started attacking hospitals. So one of my last major projects was to help support an underground hospital. Hello everyone, this is an urgent appeal. I'm uh, speaking from inside what is going to be an underground hospital. In the because anybody who doesn't agree with the regime, they want to drive them out of the country. They just want a country of people who say, hail to the chief, you know? It's going to be a 20-bed hospital uh, due to the bombardment 
Um, many doctors have left the city. My last project was to support an underground clinic called Hayat Hospital. And right now I work with a, an NGO called the Syrian American Medical Society that supports over 100 medical units between full-fledged hospitals to mobile units to rehab centers, blood banks all around Syria. It's a network of physicians who work in the U.S. Some of them volunteer their time and go and help in the refugee camps and inside Syria. And some of them obviously raise funds for the organization. So I, I want to say thank you for all your donations. So your accomplishments, what are you most proud of so far? First of all, being part of uh, the American dream, the fact that I was able to be elected to office, that, that was a major accomplishment to me, particularly because of where I come from. Might be nothing to other people. Many people don't vote, they take it for granted, but I don't, and I appreciate it, and I make sure I vote in every single election. But the fact that I was elected to office is, is obviously a major accomplishment for me. My other accomplishment, which is in progress, are my children. I want them to be productive members of society, and I think we'll see the, the fruit of that work once they get into the workforce. But my 14-year-old, I want to start pushing him into volunteer work right now and to, to find a job so he can start learning how to depend on himself. Other local accomplishments as a mayor, inclusiveness in my town. I want to welcome everybody. My name is Mohamed Karula. I am honored to welcome you to the 10th annual Christmas Tree Lighted. When I became mayor in November of 2005, one of the first things that I've done was to light the Christmas tree in the municipality, which was not done in a town that's historically has been known to be very religious Christian community. So even though I am Arab American, I'm Muslim American, I'm part of the minority, I celebrate all cultures. Under my leadership, we've had the first African-American police officer the first female officer to be promoted to position of sergeant as well. A physical project such as we created a spray park in town is something physical, but bringing people together is what I feel is more important to me. Some of my other accomplishments is when I see my former students who come back to me and say thank you for everything that you have done for me. I consider that to be an accomplishment. So the fact that I feel that I'm doing positive things in my life is my accomplishment. This past summer, I said to myself about my foundation, is this worth it? And then I just went back and I started thinking about all the lives that I changed. And I always say, if I walk into a room and there's 10 kids there, if one kid take away the message that I'm trying to give him that I may be screwed up on, then it's all worth it. So is it all worth it to you? Um, 100%, and I have the same mentality as you. My whole career, if I would have influenced one person positively, then I fulfilled my obligation in, in life. But I'm glad that I feel that I've influenced many others. And, you know, I live by and teach others that don't let the chain of love stop with you. I have a lot of pride today because New Jersey gets a lot of bad things said about it. You know, the fact that you're doing this in the state that I grew up, born, raised in, Randy grew up, born, raised in, you're making Jersey look good, which is nice. Thank you. Thank you very I much. Thank you, man. This is amazing. I think this is going to touch a lot of people. I hope so. I appreciate you coming here. The stories that you have given us, 
the way you opened up something I will I know definitely that I will take forever absolutely aren't you playing one-on-one -on -one, by the way yeah we're gonna try you're gonna show <laughs> some video <laughs> well thank you thank you very much Randy and uh, Noah our ignorance can be significant to how we receive one another the pages are often the same, but we're quick to judge the cover. Can't get to the content of character before painting a certain picture. Our judgments are amateur. Our assumptions build barriers. Lack of understanding builds hate. Religions and skin tones make us feel so different, but we really ain't. We're all human beings. We're all people. When we take an outside shot at love, maybe then we'll see that we're all